My name is Mary, and I am an alcoholic. And I'm so grateful to be here and grateful to be sober. Um, my dry date is the 10th of August, 1984. My group is a Markham Village group in Markham, Ontario. Um, and I'm a very, very grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you, Lee. Um, I'd like to thank Alexa so much. This is the third time she has been my hostess, picking me up. Usually, they last about one time. Um, <laughs> but I, um, uh, she, she's wonderful, and she would do anything that I asked her to. So thank you very much. I'm basically non-demanding. And um, ask my husbands. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, I would like to thank everybody and anybody who had absolutely anything to do with putting on this wonderful event, because it is truly a wonderful event. And, uh, you know, it it doesn't matter where I go speaking in the world, I always hear about Stateline. And it takes a lot to put in this. And a lot of little people out there that you don't see and you don't realize that they're contributing to this. So I would just like to thank you. And I think they deserve a thank you from all of us. And I'd like to thank Sharon and Ralph for their wonderful talks last night, hearing their stories. Thank you. Amazing. And, and to Rick, my Al-Anon friend, you just are so wonderful. I just identify with you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for Lee, who gave that wonderful presentation on the history. So... Um, I think I've thanked about everybody. I want to thank God and, and, and Bill and Bob uh, for this wonderful program we've given. You know, when I came up, when I came in today, Lee had put on Bob Marley, get up, stand up, fight for your rights, you know. And uh, I used to live in Jamaica, and he was one of my guys. He didn't like me, and I didn't like him, but I, li- I liked what he did. You know, I liked what he did. And, and, and I, I've been very much like that since I've been a child. I've always wanted uh, something to believe in. Maybe it's my Irish-Scottish ancestry. You know, I don't know. But I've had various things that I used to fight for when I was young. You know, at age 14, I was boycotting South African grapes. <laughs> um, and getting into a lot of trouble from, from then. I was, um, I was an activist in some other groups. Um, when I was nursing, I uh, got in with a group of um, uh, anti-apartheid people who had come over to study from South Africa. Uh, I got very involved with them and got into a lot of trouble. And when I was with British Airways, I went to South Africa. And they wanted me to separate the children in Johannesburg. They wanted me, they've got two signs. It says Blanca and non-Blanca. And as soon as they got off these kids that I was bringing on the lollipop specials from all the schools in England. As soon as we landed in, 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 in Johannesburg, uh, they wanted me to separate the kids, and I absolutely refused to do that. Uh, I didn't want any part of it. So it's, I've always wanted something, something to believe in. And these traditions, I feel this way. I feel that Bill, you know, he calls us benign anarchists. And I truly believe that when Bill formulated these and called them the traditions... He absolutely knew what he was doing. When I was an early member of Alcoholics Anonymous and just so grateful to be here, and I had no argument with anything. I had no argument with the steps. I had no argument with the traditions. I had no argument about basically anything I was asked to do in this program. 
until I got a little weller. But um, as, <laughs> as regards sponsorship directions, but I never had any, any problem with the traditions. And I remember um, when they told me at six months I could start to have a position, I asked them if there was such a position as a tradition upholder. So somebody said to me, I didn't know, the old timers, I used to believe everything they said. Uh, The old timers said to me, well, we don't have a tradition upholder, but we have um, the AA police. (laughs) And I asked how I could join. (laughs) So I basically set up my own and... uh, and, you know, we, we had a little history today from, from uh, Lee, who did a wonderful job. And I've got a little here. And some of the stuff I'm going to be reading from and sharing with you is my own experience with the group and the traditions, but also kind of how we evolved. You know, he spoke about the Washington Post article. Um, I think it was... After that was published, membership grew from twenty to 80,000. I mean, that's a lot of people. And if you can imagine, there was absolutely no rules, no regulations, nothing. All we had is people who started groups, and they would impose their own set of rules. And if you did not conform to those rules, you would be expelled from the group. And those rules were overreaching. I mean, they went from everything to Irish, non, non-Irish, non-blacks, um, non-Catholics, all Protestants, um, a certain uh, way of behaving and dressing. Um, you had the old boys club. Um, at first, Dr. Bob really didn't want to, to have women. You can tell from his haircut, he wasn't a 13-stepper. And... Uh, <laughs> I love Bob's haircut. And um, I can imagine his wife doing it to him when he was drunk just to get back at him. So um, headquarters New York started receiving all these letters um, about the problems they were having. And the 12, st- the 12 traditions has evolved out of all these problems. Every problem that there ever was and that we still can have today when people want to ignore the traditions, it's all been covered. There is no avenue you can think of that we can go into that hasn't been covered by the traditions. Because, you see, Bill was an alcoholic, and Bill knew about the cunning alcoholic mind. The alcoholic mind that is always looking Somehow, to get it my way. That ego that keeps resurfacing in all of us. And it can do so much damage to a group. I do not understand why people want to change Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And there are a lot of movements afloat that would like to change Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know why. Because really, what else have we got? What is the success rate for any other? I mean, look at the Washingtonians. The Washingtonians, 1840s, uh, six drunks sitting in a bar in Baltimore, Maryland. They want to stay sober. So they decided they're going to meet and help each other to stay sober. That was it, stay sober. And in a few years, the movement was so big, it had gone to, well, there's varying arguments about what it went to, but some say it went to almost 600,000 members. But you see, that's because they didn't have any singleness of purpose. That is because they get into, if it was politics, the suffragette movement, um, uh, money, they became very interested in money, they became interested in publicity. And the fact was they had no spiritual base. They didn't have a spiritual program. And when you think about it, in a few short years, there's none of them left. They were all gone. They were all drunk, hopeless. That was a massive movement. And when Bill received all these letters, he came to the astonishing conclusion that if all of these membership rules were adhered to, nine-tenths of the membership wouldn't be allowed in the rooms. When he gathered them all together. Now, there's a lot of alcoholics in here. Can you imagine if it was your group way back in the early days? Just think about how you'd run it. Before you'd done the 12 steps. (laughs) Scary, isn't it? Because we have that mind that wants to control. So the idea for the uh, 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous came directly from all the correspondence that was generated after the Washington Post um, article. And... Alcoholics Anonymous was actually breaking apart. Breaking apart. And that is when that member in 1945, uh, I think uh, CHK from Michigan, he wrote an article about the Washingtonians. And it really affected Bill and Bob very, very much. And they set to work going around and talking to people in the groups. And of course, they were not well received. Because, (laughs) you know, my sponsor, Clancy, my beloved sponsor, you know, he used to say that when he was drinking, he'd stand and he'd beat his fist and he'd say, justice, justice for all mankind. And then at the end, it was mercy, mercy, you know. And, And that's what all these members were like. The justice, justice, do it my way. Justice, justice, I want it my way because I started the group. It's my group. And it'll go the way I want it to go. And they didn't want rules. They absolutely refused to have rules. So that is why it's not called rules and why it's called traditions. Because I think there's something deep, deep within our motley little hearts, alcoholics of my type, 
that, um, that, that like the word traditions. I come from an old country. I come from an old country. I was brought up on Celtic Gaelic traditions. I mean, some of them are bizarre in the light of day. You know, I mean, I mean, I've still got an aunt talks to the fairies, you know, and, uh, but, but they're entrenched in people. These traditions are entrenched in people. And that's what the word traditions does. The minute you think about it, that brilliant word, it becomes entrenched within you. So it's another stroke of genius. As was said, I think, uh, I can't remember who said it, but these, Bill published them first. He used a grapevine as his vehicle to publish the traditions uh, because that way there was nobody shouting at him from groups. You know, they were still asking Bob to come and speak, but they were saying in a little note to him or the phone call, whatever, come and tell us about where you used to hide the bottles. Come and tell us about your drinking sprees but don't talk about those damn traditions. So if he put them out in writing form, then they would be read. Even if it was to be read and put aside, they'd be read. Because alcoholics, if you're a good alcoholic, you want to be informed about the topic of the day. You just have to go to a business meeting to see that. So... It was called 12 Points to Assure Our Future. And that's certainly what these traditions have done. They've, they have, please God, will go on to assure our future. And you know, the groups that were really in trouble took them very seriously. Because they understood and were afraid. And I think that's what happens to a lot of us. We become afraid. And that's why you see sometimes, you know, the discordance that you see in groups between people. The, the fear and the paranoia that can overcome us when we think about this thing slowly collapsing the way the Washingtonians. And we are fearful people. We are fearful people. No matter how long we are sober, at least, you know, to everything I know, being around here for 35 years, no matter how long we're sober, no matter, you know, how old we get, you know, there's a few things that never, ever quite go away. Emotional immaturity, deep sensitivity, and fear. And when I'm in fear about something happening to Alcoholics Anonymous, I will get into my neurosis, and then I'll get into my paranoia. And then it becomes my obsession of the mind. So I'll start doing a little circle of the groups in my area to make sure they're all adhering to the traditions. It's like, here she comes, you know. <laughs> um, and Bill presented the traditions at, um, at the AA convention in Cleveland in 1950, the first one. That's where, he, that's where he... And Dr. Bob was there as well. And I'm so happy that Dr. Bob was alive to okay these traditions, because can you imagine what would go on if it was just Bill had passed these traditions? Because, you know, AA is more or less, even today, divided into two camps. You know, you have the Akronites, you have the people out there, and then you have 
the people in New York and further on, you know, the Wilsonians and the, the, and the Smithsonians, <laughs> if you like. And each one thinks that their hero is better than the other one. And Dr. Bob died in the November after these were, were, were published. Um, so what are the 12 traditions? Well, they are to group survival and harmony, what the 12 steps are to our survival. And without them, we will surely die. Because, you see, if I don't do the 12 steps and adhere to the 12 steps and keep in good spiritual condition according to the 12 steps, then I will surely die. If I don't physically die, I will certainly die spiritually. But if we don't uphold the 12 traditions, then there'll be nothing left of us. Tradition one. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. What does that really mean? It's how to best work and live together. Because that unity that we feel in the rooms is everything. Have you ever been in a group at a business meeting, at a speaker meeting, when you've sat in the rooms and you're worried about the unity? Anybody? Show me hands. That's a lot of people. And I don't have time to ask you all individually what, it, what that particular thing was about. But I hope that as I go on here, I'll cover some of the things that can cause that feeling. Or let me talk for me. Certainly cause them for me and for my sponsees who call me about them. So it's a principle of humility rather than rebellion. Um, again, growing up, I used to think that I was a female brave heart. You know, and, and I used to even go up to the highlands where he used to run a ball and I'd run around shouting all the rubbish. I just didn't have any blue paint. And, <laughs> and, and I understand this completely now, that I was always a rebel until alcohol took away everything I had. When I came in these doors, I had nothing left. I'm talking nothing. There was no, I didn't even have any humanity left when I came in these doors. Nothing. Barely, I had nothing. Nothing. My rebellion had been completely taken out of me by the demon alcohol, as my granny used to call it. Every facet and part of me had been erased. And I came in here with humility. I came in here realizing that for the first time in my life, I could admit that I knew nothing about living. Nothing. I thought I knew about love. 
but my beloved children were taken away. So was that love? Everything was gone. When they told me I just had to be a small part of the great whole, I was amazed that they'd even want to have me. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. When I came in here, I was not looking good. I mean, my old sponsee, I said to her once, you know, Carol, a lot of my sponsees are being 13-stepped. I was never (laughs) 13-stepped. She said, do you remember what you looked like when you came in? (laughs) She said you had Jake leg. We used to take you to meetings in a car. So this group has to survive, or the, the group has to survive, or the individual not. It's really that simple. My personal ambitions, no matter what, have to be set aside. If this thing is something that I honor and treasure and feel honored to be a part of, then all I'm asked to do is to keep these traditions. And the perspective that I get from sitting in the meeting, the perspective I get from being in a group discussion and from listening to other people because I have learned to listen and respect, that lets me see who I really am. And that lets me see how much I need a leash How much I need a leash. Because being, being the activist that I used to be, and then going to where I was, and two extremes, and then coming in these rooms and see what is being offered to me, that our personal recovery depends on AA unity. I realized I wanted to be in middle ground. I wanted to be in the middle ground. I wanted to be able to think about what is best for Alcoholics Anonymous. Not me. One more time, it's not about me, it's about you. Um, Tradition two. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. I love that. I love that. Uh, The example I have to give you. I lived uh, in sobriety. I lived in another country, a couple of countries, just for a little while. And one of those, there was a guy had set up a meeting in his basement, and it was called his first name, so-and-so's meeting. And I went to this meeting because there wasn't many meetings where I was. And, uh, and he would always chair the meeting. He would announce this is Godzilla's meeting. 
And he does the same people to read every week. So, not being in fit spiritual condition one day, I um, <laughs> I went to him and I questioned this, and um, I told him, you know, I, if none of us get to speak and participate. How are we going to deal with our alcoholism? He said, well, how long are you sober? And I told him, he said, listen, I'm in the medical profession. What you think is alcoholism is just little bits of alcohol still stranded in your psyche. What? <laughs> little bits of alcohol still stranded in my psyche? So we had a little disagreement. And, um, and then he told me he was going up to the States to this medical conference that was going on. And he was going to hear a guy who was coming to speak. And he would bring me back these CDs. And I used to say to him, why don't you listen to Clancy talking about alcoholism? That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He'd never, you know, he didn't want to hear Clancy. So... Anyway, he comes back from the medical convention in Florida. And I went to him and I said, so where are the CDs? I'm looking for the CDs. You know, I want to hear what this guy had to say. He said, oh, forget it. It wasn't any good. The next day I called Clancy. He says, I just got back from Miami speaking at a medical conference. <laughs> Of course, I went armed with a few facts. <laughs> um, the wisdom of rotation and democracy. Um, I joined a group a few years ago. I had been at one group for many, many, many years, and then I changed. And I joined another group, and when I went to that group, um, they had a similar setup, although it wasn't called his group. But he would chair all the meetings, and he would pick the people who had to do what they were doing. And I had some of my friends started coming and joined the group, and you know we went to the business meeting, and um, and we sat down and we, we spoke about this, you know, and, and uh, you know we spoke about the spirit of rotation, and uh, it did not go down well. But eventually, um, the, to be honest with you. They just didn't really know about it. They, they didn't apply it. And a lot of times you will see that that is ignorance too. Now, it might be ignorance that they want to keep and cultivate for their own selfish egos. I don't know. But now that group has changed completely and we're on the spirit of rotation. Um, and, and, you know, what this reminds me too is that the, 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 the child... The trial and error has come about knowing that every group has defects. There is no perfect group in the world. We all have defects. And, you know, you might have everybody running really well and it's lovely and then go to the next business meeting and it's a whole different story because someone's gone home and started thinking about things for a bit. And that's, you know, as you know, that's never a good idea because they get idea, bing! And they're up all night thinking about how they'll tell us about this new idea. 
And then when you compare it to the tradition, it just it does doesn't pan, pan out. You know, and I'm not going to be reading you a lot from from uh, from the, the the twelve traditions are here for you to read. But it's important in in, in, in uh, tradition too that you think about Charlie of Charlie Towns. You know, when I was watching the history there, I saw what my hero Bill Wilson went through. He had no money, and he kept having these opportunities to have money. And he just kept getting shot down, and thank God he did. And remember, too, that Charlie Towns offered him a job at Towns Hospital. And he thought that would be a great idea. But he took it back to the group, to, to, you know, a group conscience. And he said, don't you realize you can never become a professional? Don't you always say to us that good is the enemy of best? You have to be the best there can be, Bill. You see, the group conscience is what keeps us right-sized. And we listen to it. Well, most of us do. Some of us go find another group. Um, (laughs) And, you know, as Bill put it, as the member said to him, it's a matter of life and death, Bill. And as Bill says, so spoke the group conscience. The group was right and I was wrong. The voice on the subway was not the voice of God. How often have you thought the voice of God is telling you to do something? And the group conscience doesn't agree with God. And that's what he says here. He really believed it was the voice of God telling him to do this. And he'd be prepared for professional work. In AA. What a nightmare that would have been. He said, here was the true voice welling up out of my friends, out of my group conscience. I listened and, thank God, I obeyed. Tradition three. I don't think there is any tradition more than this one that causes problems in Alcoholics Anonymous. The only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. That creates a lot of problems in Alcoholics Anonymous. That is why it's so important when you have a new member come in that you sit down and you talk to the member and make sure that they are in the right fellowship. How many people in here have saw people died because they're in the wrong fellowship? A lot. We don't seem to understand that we hold people's lives in our hands here when we sit down and talk to them. You know, in AA, you'll have, you'll have two groups. You know, again, you'll have the ones who are the zealots. I've often been accused of being a zealot, but you have the one who, who are the zealots, and then you'll have the other one that are love and tolerance to the extreme, bring in anybody, this is for everybody, we can help you, it doesn't matter what your ailment is, we can help you. And that is so damaging to people. We kill people talking like that. There is no barrier to any alcoholic wishing to join Alcoholics Anonymous. None.
you have to have a desire to stop drinking. I have even met overeaters in Alcoholics Anonymous who tell me that they come because they have a desire not to drink because they've never wanted to drink. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's unbelievable how this can be manipulated. Dr. Um, Well, it was Dr. Bob's group, but Bill gives a great example. He says, at about year two, this is about to how we incorporated that we only need a desire to drop drinking to stop anybody is welcome. At about year two of the Akin group, a poor devil came to Dr. Bob in a grievous state. He could qualify as an alcoholic, all right. But he said, Doc, I've got another real problem to tell you. I don't know if I can join AA because I'm also a sexual deviant. Well, that had to go to the group conscience. You know, Dr. Bob and his haircut, he wasn't really tolerant. I know. <laughs> Probably a little shocked, you know. Up until then, anybody could say what they wanted to about who could join and who couldn't join. And the group conscience got very heated. And generally they said, this is a letter that was written in, um, you know, Bill gave this talk at the General Service Conference in 1968, a talk on the traditions. Uh, Under no circumstances could we have such a coward and such a disgrace amongst us, said these gentlemen. And as Bill writes, as then our destiny hung by a thread. It was on a razor edge over this single case. Could we exclude this so-called undesirability that obviously was an alcoholic, but obviously had what was called back then another problem, which we would not call today? We're talking long ago here. Who are we considering our record? Who are we as recovering alcoholics to sit in judgment and exclusion of anybody? The bunch were sitting in Dr. Bob's living room arguing, And dear old Dr. Bob looked around and said, isn't it time, folks, to ask ourselves, what would the master do? Bill states in the 12 and 12 that this fellow plunged into 12-step work and tirelessly carried the message. Never did he trouble anyone with his other problem. That's... That's the beginning of how this evolved. People dealing with people. Not some highfalutin concept that sat down and thought about to keep us pure. It's from absolute experiences. Manhattan Group, 1945. You know, people didn't want to let blacks in. Didn't want to let gays in. Didn't want anybody to come in except the real alcoholic. Who usually looked like... Dr. Bob. (laughs) I love Dr. Bob. 
So in the Manhattan Group, 1945, a man came in needing help. He was black and no black members. He was also an ex-convict. All his earthly belongings were on his back. His hair was bleach blonde. He had on makeup and told us he was a dope fiend and an alcoholic. Someone called Bill. <laughs> Can you imagine that conversation? <laughs> so Bill, the genius of Bill, asked if he was an alcoholic. Certainly an alcoholic. So the prospect was invited to attend meetings, but just, just to speak about his alcoholism. Bill states that these two examples were the precedent for the third tradition. That's how it came about. That's basically how tradition three came about. And again, I think that today it's so important to sit down. I'll tell you a couple of examples um, that I've had that have caught, I've seen young people go to their death because they were in the wrong fellowship. And in fact, one just very recently who was a, a very young beautiful man, very dear to my heart. Um, it breaks my heart. Um, a desire to stop drinking it comes from a deep place. And it comes from a place of suffering. It comes from a place of drinking a legal beverage that I can go in and buy in any corner store that I can see anybody going by anywhere, that I can see being served in every public place, on planes everywhere, and yet if I drink it, I become crazy. Because I've proven it to myself time after time, sitting watching drinkers, and people say, just have one. Okay. <laughs> and I end up with them berating me and looking down at me in disgust. And I haven't even had as much as them to drink. So that feeling of difference that we have is a feeling that all, everybody else, they seem to be able to drink this thing that I can't. And there's a great shame in that. And one more time, it sets me about as a separate entity. I cannot have a social drink. I've never seen anybody have a little social crack. <laughs> but it is that difference that makes me a separate entity. So tradition four. Each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. That more or less basically is that if my group decides something that's only going to be held within the group, and it's not breaking the tradition, it's okay. But if it's going to damage my surrounding groups or if it's going to damage anything else in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, had to, I have to go and see about it. We had an example, you've probably heard about it, um, where this affected, and it was... Uh, one of the oldest groups in, in Alcoholics Anonymous decided they were going to become an atheist group. And um, they started putting up signs, etc., etc., about atheists and uh, taking down the steps and the traditions. And 
intergroup went all around our groups and we decided that we were going to delist them from the meeting book because they weren't adhering to, to, to our traditions, etc. And uh, they were taken out the meeting book and um, they took us to human rights. Yeah. And it was okay for them to take us to court uh, on um, religious discrimination. And uh, New York had to come up and eventually uh, we had to settle that case and they just can't print their own formulation of the steps. That caused a lot of disunity. Um, Bill gives the example of Mid- Middletown, a group there. They were all hot as firecrackers about it. Stargazing, the elders dreamed of innovations. They figured the town needed a great big alcoholic center, beginning on the ground floor. Can you imagine it would just rise to these massive heights? And there was a promoter in the deal, a super promoter. And by his eloquence, he allayed all fears. And they formulated 61 rules. To ensure foolproof continuous operation, 61 rules and regulations were adopted. Confusion replaced serenity. They want some young drunks yearn for education, doubted if they were alcoholics. Personality defects of other could be cured with a loan. <laughs> a little wonder what happened. The head promoter wrote the foundation office. Then he did something else that was to become an AA classic because the group was dropping apart. It went on a little card, golf score size. The cover read, Middleton Group Number 1, Rule 62. Once the card was unfolded, a single pungent sentence leaped to the eye. Don't take yourself too seriously. And that's where Rule 62. Right. Tradition 5. Each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. AA is limited. That's why Bill starts this with the old essay, Shoemaker, stick to thy last. Better to do one thing well than many badly. The only thing I know about is alcohol. I don't know about anything else. I am very limited in what I can do. I know my limitations. I now know my limitations before I accept being a sponsor. Because I don't want to hurt anybody. I, want, I, I ask God every night, may I only ever be helpful and never hurtful. I know my limitations today. It says here, better to do one thing well than many badly. This is the central theme of the tradition. Around it, our society gathers in unity. The very life, the very life of our fellowship requires the preservation of this principle. That is a definitive statement from Bill. The very life of our fellowship. And he goes on to talk about um, singleness of purpose. And he also goes on to say, adhering to our singleness of purpose is a sacred trust. Sacred trust. Where else have you seen him use that? 
It is a sacred trust I have to keep. No matter how much I would want to to deviate from it. And you know, if you want to read about singleness of purpose and what the reasons for it being true, there's a wonderful um, um, pamphlet that Bill wrote, Problem, Problems Other Than Alcohol. And in there, in there he said, there is no way to make a non-alcoholic addict into an AA member. In my group, we have lots of dual addicts. Wonderful young people. Wonderful young people who have suffered horrendously from dual addiction. They never talk about their other addiction. They go to NA or CA. They may mention from the program that they also had a trouble with outside issues, but they go elsewhere, and they're wonderful stalwart members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, there was a young fellow. Him and his, him and his wife joined AA at the same time. She was alcoholic. He said he was alcoholic because the treatment center told him to say he was alcoholic. But he wasn't. He never drank alcohol. He was a a cocaine addict. Never had any desire to drink alcohol. Never wanted to drink alcohol. And they both got a year medallion. They got married. And then they had a beautiful little baby. And the day of that baby's christening, his wife found him in the bathroom with his wrists slashed. He had been in and out, in and out, in and out after that one year. He had confided to some of us that he was not an alcoholic, but that he did not like CA. And he had been encouraged by some to just stay in AA. So you see, he did not get the identification that makes us feel all right. He did not get what he needed, and we killed him. That's how I look on it. We killed him by making people stay here that can't identify. Because that's all we have. When I listen to the speakers, I have identification. I don't have any other degrees. Bill says, Tradition 5, it has now become plain enough that only a recovered alcohol can do much for a sick alcoholic. And it's a tremendous responsibility. An obligation so great that amounts to a sacred trust. For to our kind who suffer alcoholism, recovery is a matter of life and death. So the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous cannot, it dare not, ever be diverted from its primary purpose. That is the sacred trust that we have been given. And we do not do it to be mean. We do it to survive. We had a close meeting the other day, and a little gal came. Her father was an alcoholic, and she was a drug addict. And it was a close meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when we go around the room to identify, she said that um, she's an addict. So we asked her if she had a desire to stop drinking. And she said she didn't drink. 
Now, normally in that case, we will take them outside and talk to them and somebody will arrange to meet them the next day and take them to a meeting. Well, she had had two years, actually, in another fellowship. But she said she had come to support her father. So we had to ask her to leave because it's a closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it could have been handled very, very badly. And I have seen where it's been handled badly. And of course, some people said, well, why don't we change the format of the meeting so we can stay? But some people there were in dire need of a closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. We had to put the good of the group ahead of this this gal who had just come to be with her father. If it was an individual choice, what would you do? Thank God for the group conscience. As Bill said, if we don't stick to these principles, we shall almost surely collapse. And if we collapse, we cannot help anyone. Therefore, I see no way of making non-alcoholic addicts into AA members. Experience says loudly that we admit no exception. If we persist in trying this, I'm afraid it will be hard on the drug user himself. Think about that. It will be hard on the drug user himself. We must accept the fact that no non-alcoholic, whatever his affliction, can be converted into an alcoholic AA member. Uh, To finish with, in the language of the heart, which I love because it's got most of Bill's essays in there, it said, reflect that we shall never be our best except when we hew only to the primary spiritual principle, principle of Alcoholics Anonymous, that of carrying the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And prudently cleave, prudently cleave to its singleness of purpose. Tradition six. An AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Many examples of that. Um, That group I told you about that I joined, for a long time they had been um, given money on behalf of our group, in the name of our group, to um, a a place for... um, street people downtown. This is a contribution from so-and-so group um, immediately creating an affiliation. And not only that, but using um, Step 7 money for an outside issue. Um, There's been many examples I've seen in my group for example, Christmas presents. Taking Christmas presents from our group down to the Salvation Army in the name of our group. These are all very, very worthy enterprises. But they can't continue because then we'll be affiliated. And the last thing that came up was that every year, apart from paying the rent, they decided to give a big donation to the church. Sounds very nice, doesn't it? That's not what we're about here. You want to divvy up your money, then send it to New York or send it to Intergroup, but 
you know, not the church. All these arguments that came up about endorsing finance and lending the AA name, in the early days that was a big problem because everybody wanted to jump on the AA bandwagon. Everybody. There was even liquor companies wanted to jump on the AA bandwagon. But, you know, Bill writes here and here too. You know, we of AA did dream those dreams because most alcoholics are bankrupt idealists. And then came the educational. Then came the, the question, is this a spiritual or a medical problem? And then there were some psychiatrists wanting to use the AA name when they were ha- having um, um, people treating some of their patients. We do this under the AA auspices. I myself spent four years in and out of mental institutions. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Treated as a manic depressive. My last entry in there, that they started changing my diagnosis, my primary diagnosis was changed from manic depressive to chronic alcoholic. And sending me to the AA meetings that came in as a separate entity to the psychiatric unit. Because the psychiatrists have told me I know nothing. The ones who are honest, just like Dr. Young said to Roland. I've heard about recoveries, but me personally, I've never seen them. And he was a very famous man. I had an example of this I'll share with you. My last husband had a massive stroke. He could never speak. He couldn't understand the spoken word. He never was able to speak again. He had severe global aphasia. It means he woke up in China. It's like he's speaking Chinese. Everybody's speaking Chinese. He doesn't speak Chinese. He could never read. It was just poor soul. He, he, was comp- he didn't have any language skills, which involves more than just words. It's, This is a chair. John, touch your nose. He didn't know how to do any of that. And then he became very violent because he's a recovering alcoholic. He couldn't talk. (laughs) (laughs) So I put them in um, um, a rehabilitation center. It It really was called a behavioral center because if he hadn't gone in there, they were going to put him in lockdown units, and I didn't want him in lockdown units. So these psychiatrists called me down and they said, we're going to do a study, Mary, based on AA and what we've learned about AA and alcoholic. We realize your husband's an alcoholic and we're having trouble communicating with him, even through aphasia. It's a special way to deal with stroke patients, communication. They said, we realize you alcoholics think different. You react different. Sometimes you see things different to the rest of the world would you be willing to do a little psychiatric test? I said, uh, of course. I'm eight years sober. <laughs> I'm well. So they give me this psychiatric test and three little books, I answer them, I turn them in and 
A little while later, maybe a day, <laughs> they call me and said, could I come down? They've got the results. So I go down there, and there's three psychiatrists sitting behind a table with a tape recorder. And when I go in and sit down, they said, we've had the results of the test. We have a question to ask you. I said, yes. They said, who's looking after you now? I said, nobody. They said, what medication are you on? I said, none. They said, according to this, you should be. So then they wanted to publish this thing in their monthly magazine about alcoholics and this different kind of a psychiatric makeup they have based on this. And that, what would that be? It would be an affiliation, wouldn't it? So I said, no. Of course, they didn't know what they were talking about. They're not like us. And no wonder, no wonder the psychiatric uh, profession has a hard time understanding us. How many people in here have gone to a psychiatrist and lied? Oh, my God. No wonder they're screwed. <laughs> and, of course, as Bill says, the, um, the accumulation of money, property, and the unwanted personal authority so often gu guaranteed by personal wealth a serious hazards, again, which an AA group must be on guard against. Tradition 7. Every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Again, I've seen that happen in our group. When we have in, in, in Canada, when we have our medallion nights, uh, we have them every five years. I just had one for my 35th year. I delayed it a bit till November because I wanted my, my sons wanted to be there. And um, on your medallion night, um, you pick the speaker, you pick the people who read, and you get a cake, and it's just your night. It's just for you. And a lot of, a lot of family members come. And I noticed that some of them were putting money in the plate. That's an outside contribution, Right? People don't think about that, but that's outside contribution. Self-supporting alcoholics. This makes us be self-supporting. Who ever heard of a self-supporting alcoholic? <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but I know. Not so, today I know what my dependence is. I am absolutely and completely dependent on God. And that way I have utter and complete independence. But I was, me and the alcoholics I sponsor, we've always had very dependent personalities. That's just part of who we are. Bill writes about that in um, emotional sobriety. I get very dependent. I used to get very dependent. And as regards being self-supporting through my own contributions, that was a foreign concept. You know, I, I had this feeling that I was just entitled to get all this free stuff. And if I didn't get it, I'd take it. So this is, this is asking me to build character. It's also asking my group to be fully self-supporting, asking Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole to be fully self-supporting so that nobody, no government, nobody can come and tell us what to do. 
What was it Rockefeller said? I think I wrote, John Rockefeller. He said that money would spoil this thing. What an insight that was. Money will spoil this thing. He said, accepting donations would compromise the autonomy and independence and anonymity of our members. Genius. Thank you, Rockefeller. I know Bill didn't want to thank him at the time, but thank you, Rockefeller. Thank you. And thank you for me personally, because you see, the development of character is what I've, I've received in here. I didn't have character. I got character formation through being in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and applying these traditions to my life. So, you know, in this world, as in this world, as someone said to me long ago when I was really, really down, he who holds the gold makes the rules. The piper plays the tune. We are at a magnificent society within a society who are self-supporting through what we do. Traditionally, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. The biggest contention in the fellowship today is professionalism. A lot of people are wanting to professionalize Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you, you, if I'm not going to bring it to your attention too much. If you see it, then you'll know what I'm talking about and you'll be able to name it. The single purpose is defeated. Every time we've tried to professionalize a 12-step, the result has been exactly the same. Singleness of purpose that of one alcoholic helping another alcoholic freely. We have bounty hunters in the rooms these days. I don't know if you know that, but there's bounty hunters. There's paid sponsorship. <gasps> paid sponsorship. And Bill just goes on here to talks. Perhaps the fear will always lurk in every AA heart that one day our name will be exploited by somebody for real cash. And I would say to you too that if somebody is coming to Alcoholics Anonymous and being asked for money when they come in the door because it looks like they just drove up in a Cadillac or a Rose or whatever it is, that person is slowly and gently being pushed back out the door again. I sponsor a lot of very wealthy women who has very, been very, very hard for them to get sobriety because of how much, I'm talking a lot of money. Let them come to a safe place where money is not important. I like to think we're all one size when we come in here. All one size. And of course, we do hire. We do hire people to work in our offices, etc. That's a totally different thing. 
How many people have sponsored somebody who at four weeks sobriety say they're going to be a counsellor? <laughs> it has been my opinion and my experience that everybody who does that but goes in and works in a treatment centre they begin to say that every day they're doing their work for an alcoholic. But I point out to them they're being paid for it. And they stop coming to AA because now they're professionals. Now they're professionals. And they slowly slip away into the wide blue yonder. Many times I was asked to come and work in a treatment center. I have no degrees. Oh, I'm as an alcoholic. I said, no, of course not. I was offered to come and speak at this big, there's a beautiful club in um, on, on, uh, Toronto called the Granite Club. It's a millionaire, billionaire club. They asked me to come and speak um, uh, a bunch of um, um, GMs, general managers, etc., for a fee. No. Do this for free and for fun. Come to an open meeting. Tradition nine. A as such ought never be organized, but we may create service board or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Great suffering, but Bill wrote, great suffering and great lover, A as disciplinarians. We don't need any other. That's it. The people who are sitting in this room, I'm talking to the converted. Is there anybody in this room has any problem with the traditions? Just raise your hand. Absolutely nobody. Because we've all been beaten and humiliated into submission and the great love that we have for Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> right? It's the only way we learn. It's the only way we learn. It's the difference between that of vested authority or the spirit of service. And Bill said, did you ever hear of a nation, a church, or a political party, even a benevolent association, that had no membership rules? Every nation, in fact, every form of society, has to have a government administered by human powers. It is headquarters in New York. That's where we go. They don't have any authority either. Call him and ask him something. <laughs> what does your group say? Or we really don't have any uh, opinion on that. Unless each AA member follows the best of his ability or suggested 12 steps of recovery, he almost certainly signs his own death warrant. His drunkenness and dissolution are not penalties inflicted by people in authority. They result from his personal disobedience to spiritual principles. The 12 traditions are spiritual principles. If I want to deviate from them, I'm immediately taking my steps out the door. Though Tradition 9 at first seems to deal with purely practical martyrs, its actual operation, it discloses a society within an organization animated only by the spirit of service, a true fellowship. 
Tradition 10, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. And Bill said, never since the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous has it been divided by a major controversial issue. Thank God, never. And yet, I've gone to groups and heard political discussions going on. Anybody in here heard that? Oh, I forget I'm in America. <laughs> Gets rather heated, doesn't it? <laughs> Bill said, let us re-emphasize that this reluctance to fight one another or anybody else is not counted as some special virtue that makes us feel superior to other people. Nor does it mean that members of Alcoholics Anonymous are restored as citizens of the world are going to back away from their individual responsibilities to act as they see right upon the issues of our time. That's what it is. Personally, in my personal life, it's what I feel and what I, I support and what I can think will be the best for out there. In here, it's according to what you tell me. I can voice what I think, but it's according to what you tell me. The only tangible evidence for the Washingtonian movement left up until I think early 1900s was um, a home for the fallen in Boston six members or something because they didn't have any of these traditions and uh our pub tradition 11, our public relations policy based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. It's attraction, not promotion. And you know, when someone approaches me and tells me that they listen to my CD on YouTube, immediately it makes me feel different. Why am I on YouTube? I'm just a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It immediately creates a feeling of disunity. So if you know it, and not only that, the other thing is this. They get paid for each download. Or however many downloads. They get paid for that. So they're making money out of 12-step work which is one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. And Bill says, um, you know, to soberly, soberly face the fact that being in the public eye is particularly hazard, hazardous for us. By temperament, nearly every one of us has been an irrepressible promoter. And the prospect of society composed almost entirely of promoters was frightening. Consider this explosive factor, we had to exercise self-restraint. And the early members, Lillian Roth, I'll cry tomorrow, she thought she was doing AA a good turn and she identified as an alcoholic and ended up dying drunk in the gutter. We have all these movie stars today that are breaking their anonymity. For what? If they get drinking again, what does it mean to somebody who one day had thought about coming to AA. Anyway, it's tradition 12 and I'll finish. Uh, 
Anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. What did Dr. Bob say? Love and service. We all know what love is. We all know what service is. It speaks to our personal anonymity. It speaks to not wanting to identify as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for whatever glory (laughs) it might get you. Whoever thought you'd get glory out of being an alcoholic? You know, you know, going to a, a New Year's party and just announcing to all, I'm a member. See how impressed they are by all of that, you know, and probably saying, well, you bloody should be, you know. And, uh, you know, in the early days, they wanted to shout about AA from the housetops, and some did. But it was plain that we could not be a secret society. And it is placing principles before personalities. And what are the principles? The principles are, again, what I've just gone over and what are reflected in the 12 traditions. Those are the principles. Those are the way that we're able to spread this fabulous, beautiful, God-given fellowship. I will never, ever take this deal for granted. Never. I have been given me, I've been given a gift of life, of self-respect, of being able to hold my head up. I never thought I could hold my head up ever again, the things that had happened to me because of my alcoholism. There's nothing more could happen to me. I know the dark places. Death, death would have been all right. I know the dark regions of being on the the street. And believe you me, there's no hope. No hope there. And yet you offer me a hand, a free talk, a free cup of coffee, a place to come and get warm. You smile at me. You don't turn away in disgust. You don't sniff at me. Where in the world could I get that? I'm a chronic alcoholic. I never knew there was any hope. So, you ask me, I've got to do a few simple things and stay out of myself for the traditions and do 12 steps and I'll get a change of personality and I won't have to drink this horrible stuff that's killing me and yet I can't stop drinking. All right. I'll honor you. How do your spiritual foundation? And Bill just said to finish, these experiences taught us that anonymity is real humility at work. It is an all-pervading spiritual quality, which today keynotes AA life everywhere. Moved by the spirit of anonymity, we try to give up our natural desires for personal distinction. We are sure that humility expressed by anonymity, is the greatest safeguard that Alcoholics Anonymous can ever have. And thank you so much for having me here.